You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. I don't know if God considered an 11th plague, um, but pollen would have been a really (laughs) devastating one probably. Um, I'll tell you what, March hit and it all came out, and as I was standing back there in worship, I could see all of your footprints to your seats where there's pollen all over our carpet. Well, this is our last week here uh, before we'll transition to a renovated space uh, in a few weeks. Um, so we're excited about that. So just as a reminder, next week we'll be meeting at 4 o'clock at First Baptist Sonoy. Um, we'll give you specific instructions once we talk to them this week about parking and where to enter and where to exit and all that kind of good stuff. But um, we're super thankful that they've been willing to open up their facility so that we can meet there uh, for a few weeks and uh, just hoping and praying that uh, things will move in a timely manner here so that we can be back to our normal meeting time uh, just as soon as possible. Exodus chapter 9 uh, verse 13, we're picking up here. Uh, After last week's um, application Sunday uh, with the 7th, 8th, and ninth plagues, Um, it's a lengthy text for us today because we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. Um, There's more discussion on these three plagues than maybe some of the previous ones. I think part of that is because we see the intensification really start to increase uh, with these last three plagues, and so we're going to see some of that today too. Um, we'll take time to read the entire text, but we're going to do it in chunks uh, as we cover it. So normally we would read the whole text right now, uh, but to avoid doing that uh, from a time standpoint multiple times, we're going to wait and do it as we go through uh, each section. So we're going to jump right in and look at our summary sentence for today. While the plagues were meant to bring judgment, God also made provision for escape, calling people to turn to him for shelter from his wrath with a goal of his salvations becoming captivating storytelling for generations to come. While the plagues were meant to bring judgment, God also made provision for escape, calling people to turn to him for shelter from his wrath, with a goal of his salvations becoming captivating storytelling for generations to come. For our kids, God saves his people and wants us to tell others in order to make others want to be saved too. Uh, As we're going to read through this today, we're going to see, particularly in uh, plague number seven, that God communicates this great storm of hail that's going to come and the devastation that it's going to create across the the Egyptian land. In addition to uh, the warning that comes about this, he gives instructions about how to be spared from it. Uh, He specifically tells Pharaoh and his household that they can bring their people, they can bring their livestock into shelter and be spared from the consequences of this plague. And we'll see as we read the text, some listened and some did not. As we get into the uh, eighth plague with the locusts, we're going to see that God gives instruction to Moses that uh, while the plagues have been uh, purposeful in bringing judgment uh, upon the, the Egyptian people, it's also going to serve as content for the, the Israelites to uh, rehash and share the, the plagues with future generations to come, to be able to talk of God's provision and God's protection and God's salvation uh, through the ways that he delivered them from the Egyptians. And so <coughs> really cool to see how God wants to, to not just use this for judgment, but wants to use it in such a way where um, the people can uh, use it to reinforce and encourage and equip people to follow him faithfully. This is the third plague cycle that we've seen, um, and it's the intensification uh, is the key piece I think that we're going to see this morning, how things really start to ramp up. Um, And you'll see in the text, and I'll go ahead and read a couple passages for you, how things start to happen that have never happened before like this. For example, In chapter 9, verse 24, it says, There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Something unique and different, intense. In chapter 10, verse 6, 
talking about the locusts, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Verse 14 of chapter 10, the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. These are miracles of God, right? They're judgments, but they're miracles. They're miracles because they show God's divine power through these supernatural occurrences taking place. They're destructive, they're, they're judgmental, but they're also constructive because they're really starting to build the people of Israel into a nation. One commentator talked about how the, the plagues really help the Israelites answer some big questions about life. These are questions that uh, people still ask today, questions they want answers to, and the Israelites would have been no different. And, and remember, we have to keep in mind that the Israelites have no real basis beyond oral storytelling of who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was, right? So they don't have what we have today. They don't have Bibles that they're carrying around in their Egyptian slavery to be able to refer to. They don't have the promises of the Psalms to go and read through, right? All they've got is oral tradition, storytelling that's been passed down about God's provision for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whatever had been preserved about the the origins of creation. So they're very limited in what they know. And so some of those big questions they would have been asking that people ask today, who am I? Uh, where did I come from? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? Is God real? What does he want? These are all questions that the plagues are answering for them, right? Who are they? Well, they're his people. And they're seeing that specifically in how he protects them from the plagues, right? They see this clear division. Hey, we're not just people. We're Yahweh's people. We're God's people. There's a division in who's being impacted and affected by these plagues. They came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're coming out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. The meaning of life for them is that they've been called to now worship and serve God. They're going to do that. They're going to be called as a people to do that. The God is certainly real. He's showing himself to be far more real than the, the Egyptian gods that maybe they had grown up and, and seen being worshipped by the people around them. Big questions of life being answered as these plagues unfold. The plagues show the uniqueness of God's omnipotence, that there's no one like him on earth. Chapters 9 verse 14 says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, the uniqueness of God's omnipotence, the, the universality of God's praise that he wants everyone to hear about him. Chapter 9, verse 16, but for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants to be praised. He wants to be known by his creation. We've referenced this section already several times in our study in Exodus, but this section shows us that God put Pharaoh in this position, and kept him in this position to make himself known as great. Like God, God says, like, I could, have, I could have never had you come to power. I've kept you in power. I could have removed you from power whenever I wanted, but I've kept you here for a purpose, to make my name great. We fast forward to Exodus chapter 15, and we see some of the fruit that comes from the plagues and, and God's greatness being known in chapter 15 of Exodus Verse 14, this is after the, the Red Sea. Moses is singing and he says, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. These are other nations that they're going to encounter later. These are nations that have already been uh, prepped. They've already, they've already had some information shared with them. The God of Yahweh or the God of Israel, Yahweh, is coming, right? And he's, he's, he's wreaked havoc on the Egyptians. And so these other people are already starting to come to know the greatness of God. In Joshua chapter 9, verse 9. Joshua chapter 9, verse 9 says, This is the, the Gibeonites and the deception that they had against Israel. Uh, but just real quick, in verse 9 it says, 
Um, They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. These guys are motivated out of fear because they, they are worried about this God of Israel that they've heard about. You fast forward to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 7. This is the Philistines. And they've captured the Ark of the Covenant. It says the Philistines were afraid. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, they were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. There's fear that's starting to spread across the the countryside because of what God has done in Egypt. His goal is to be known, and he is being known. He could have wiped Egypt away. He could have wiped Pharaoh away. But we're told here in our text that he did not for a clear purpose. And that was to make himself known. This gives us comfort when we see the wicked reigning. Whether it's in our country or in other countries. When we see wicked people come to power. We can take comfort in knowing that God is bigger and better than them. Right? God tells Pharaoh this in verse 14. I'll send plagues on you yourself and all your servants and all your people so that you may know that there's none like me on all the earth. I'm better than you. I'm bigger than you. I'm more powerful than you. He communicates, I can remove you at any moment, right? So we can take comfort that when evil leaders are in place, they're not there by accident and they're not there outside of God's permission. That God keeps them there for specific purposes. He can remove them at any time and we take comfort in knowing that God is using them. Just as he says in verse 16, For this purpose I've raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God, too, uses evil leaders today, and we can take comfort from that. If you want to read more, you can read in Romans chapter 9, as Paul references God raising up Pharaoh, raising up the wicked, keeping him in power for his purposes. So the plagues show the uniqueness of God's omnipotence, no one else like him, the universality of God's praise, everyone's going to hear about him. And the plagues also show the unlimited authority of God's rule, that the earth belongs to him. Chapter 9, verse 29, it says, Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, that the earth belongs to him. That's what the plagues are communicating. We're going to see that more in depth as we jump into our text today. Number one, In our notes, we want to take shelter in Yahweh. Take shelter in Yahweh. Verse 13 of chapter 9 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. We're going to see a correlation there between how Pharaoh continues to exalt himself and even Moses and Aaron questioning him later, when will you humble yourself? Right? You're in a state of exalting yourself When will you be humbled? Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And this is an intense storm. God sends this storm of hail to attack, again, purposefully, their gods, particularly their gods of the atmosphere. Now, they had gods that were considered the gods of the sky, the gods of moisture, the gods of wind. So they had all these multiple gods. And so God, in one failing swoop, kind of covers everybody and says, I'm in charge of the atmosphere, right? I'm in charge of the sky. I'm in charge of the moisture that we find in the sky. I'm in charge of the wind that comes from the sky, too. He comes in and shows that all the elements of the sky submit to him. You can read about it in Psalm 148, verse 8, how uh, snow and wind and, and all the elements of the atmosphere belong to him. Storms can be pretty memorable. I don't know if you have ever stopped to think about some of your memories that are tied to storms. They can be scary. Uh, they can be uh, an awesome display of God's power. I remember uh, in college, my, I think I was a sophomore in college, the place that I was working on campus took our staff to Virginia Beach for a weekend uh, staff retreat. And I remember sitting on the balcony of our condo, looking out over the ocean, and in the far distance, you could see a great storm on the horizon. I just remember sitting out there, wasn't really going to impact us, but when you could see the lightning flashing across the sky, you could see that it was raining out there on the horizon. And I just remember being uh, awed by the power of God as I watched this storm roll through. I remember kind of having a similar experience when I was living in Zebulun. Um, there was this, this weird storm. It wasn't really rain or wind or anything like that. It was just constant lightning for like 30 to 40 minutes. Like it never stopped. It was just constant lightning just over and over and over and over again. And I remember thinking, I don't want to leave because I don't know that I'll ever see something as cool as this right now. And it was just like, when is it going to end? And it was just constant lightning. Um, I remember uh, a couple of summers ago, we were at the pool at my aunt's house. And we were swimming and enjoying it. And just like any summer day, you can have a storm that kind of pops up out of nowhere. And this storm came, come, came blowing in, and the wind was pretty, was pretty fierce. And I remember all of us had to kind of run and scramble to get into my aunt's screened-in porch area. We were all soaking wet from the pool, so we didn't go inside. Um, but the storm's kind of raging and around us. And I remember Mally particularly still remembers that storm to this day because when, when a storm starts to roll in, she gets a, a, a nervous feeling because she remembers what it's like to be caught in a storm. Uh, almost a year ago, the last day of hunting season, I, I, I did a stupid thing and decided I'm going to the stand even though the radar said a big storm is coming. And I remember sitting in the hunting stand and, and this storm comes through, and the tree is just swaying like crazy, and there's lightning crashing all around me, and thunder, and rain, and I remember thinking, like, Lord, if you'll spare me from this, like, I'll, I'll never make a silly decision like this again, right? Storms can be very memorable. I have no doubt that this storm was ingrained in the memory of Israel, even though they were spared from it. Just the aspect of being spared. So they were probably more in that position like I was sitting on my balcony in Virginia Beach, seeing the storm out on the horizon, being thankful that it wasn't upon me, but being able to appreciate the great power of it. It becomes one of the worst storms in Egypt's history, certainly up to that point. It doesn't specify that it'll be the greatest storm for all time, but probably so. It displays God's unique power. It shows his name to be great. But in the midst of this plague, there's a call to action for the people. The call to action being the only place to go for refuge, shelter, and peace is Yahweh. Note how that warning is given. Isn't that just like God to, to show great wrath, but in the midst of his wrath to make escape possible? I mean, that's the gospel message for us, right? That we deserve God's wrath. We deserve his punishment for our sin, for the fact that we exalt ourselves against him, 
We deserve, to be, we deserve to be dealt with. And yet he makes a way of escape. He provides the sacrifice. He provides his son so that we can escape his wrath. Well, he provides a way of escape here. He tells them, hey, you're going to want to bring everything in from the field. Bring it all in for it to be spared. Plant, animal, and person will be killed if they are left in the field. God graciously gives warning and opportunity to Egypt to prepare for this. It's really their first chance to protect themselves from one of the plagues. And I think it's probably because this is the first time that we're going to see human death as a result of the plagues. Remember, up until this point, it's been more of a nuisance, more of an annoyance, right? Things that were happening to them weren't deadly. They were just frustrating, like things that you wouldn't choose. Now death starts to come upon them, right? And so they're they're given opportunities for protection, This killer storm is coming, and they're told to seek shelter now. And we're told that some of the servants actually listen. Remember, some of these servants had recognized God's finger earlier in the plague process. Hey, Pharaoh, we can't do this. This is certainly the finger of God. Well, we're told that some of them pay attention here and listen. Whoever feared, verse 20, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. It's likely that these people who usher their slaves and their livestock into the houses are part of the group that leaves Egypt. We learn in chapter 12, verse 38, as the Hebrews leave, it's a mixed company. It's a mixed group of people. It's not just Hebrews who leave. It's people who have submitted themselves to Yahweh that were also living in Egypt. Very likely, some of these servants who said, this is the finger of God. These servants who hear that a storm is coming and they say, let's get everything in because we have no doubt this storm is coming. These are probably the ones who leave in faith when the people leave Egypt. We're told in the New Testament that similar judgments are coming our way too. The question is, will we seek shelter now to prepare? We studied Revelation chapter 16 years ago. I'm going to turn your attention there today for the seventh bowl judgment. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wrath of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Man, if similar judgments are coming, we have every reason to prepare for it, right? There's two options that we have. We can believe what the Lord says, we can obey what he commands, and we can give our worship to him, or we can doubt the Lord's power, refuse to obey and praise him, and wait to see what happens as a result. I want to I give you this question to kind of ponder. What evidence is there that you find your shelter in Jesus? What evidence is there that you find your shelter in Jesus? Do other people know you as a Christian by your actions? What evidence is there that that people would see outside of this context, right? Like, I mean, you ask anybody in here, we're probably going to say that you're a Christian, right? We see you on Sundays, and um, the fact that you're making an effort to come into worship, maybe that maybe that gives us reason to just assume and believe that you're a Christian. But think outside of this context, right? For our students who, who go to various schools in the area, your classmates, what would they say about you if I were to question them? Would they say, oh, definitely a believer. That person's definitely a Christian. Oh, great. Like, well, why would you say that? What evidence would they give? If I were to ask your coworkers, for those of you that, that work outside the home and interact with people, uh, the same people every day, if I were to ask them, hey, is this person a Christian? Do they show evidence that they follow Jesus? What would they say? Would they say yes? Would they say no? Would they say, I'm not really sure? What evidence would they give for knowing that you're a believer? What evidence is there in your life that you take shelter in Jesus? Is that known outside of these walls? 
Is that known within your family, your extended family? Are, are, they, are they aware that you follow Jesus and that you want to obey him wholeheartedly? Or is there some vagueness that's kind of left? And students, hear me on this because this, this is a big thing for you because as you get older, the coming to church piece is, is maybe a, a good piece of evidence to show fruit in your life because it's a choice that you're making. For a lot of you, I mean, you're forced to come here with your parents, right? Like you don't really have an option. So I want you to think outside of like, the church attendance piece. If you're one of our youth, one of our students, what evidence is there at the lunch table, in the locker room, on the athletic field? The type of words that you choose to use, the type of treatment that you choose to give to people outside your friend group, is it reflective of Christ? Is there evidence of true, genuine faith that, hey, I have put myself under the shelter. I believe the hailstorm's coming, and I am moving into Christ for protection. That's the call that's given here. Moses says, this is coming. He tells Pharaoh, he tells the people. He says, if you want to get out from underneath it, if you want to protect yourself, then you take action and you take shelter in Yahweh. I challenge you to think, have you done that? Is there evidence that you've done it? Are you showing that? We're going to skip... Um, We're going to skip verse 27 down. We're going to come back to it. And we're going to package all of Pharaoh's responses together and kind of see some of that at the end. So let's jump to, to number two into chapter 10, talking about the plague of locusts. Point number two today is to tell stories of Yahweh. Tell stories of Yahweh. God sends a swarm of locusts to attack their gods of the field. Once again, they've got multiple gods that were in this arena They've got their, their gods of the crops, their, their gods of the grain, their gods of the pests that's supposed to keep the pests from harming their crops of grain. Right? So they got all these gods, and so God is basically showing his superiority over all of these things and how their gods can't protect them. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, <coughs> go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. See that key piece there, what he's telling Moses. I'm about to do some things here, and I want you to take it, package it after hearing it, and share it with generations to come. Why? So that you and they may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. We'll skip verse 7 uh, and down and come back to that. Uh, said in verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the field, all that the hail has left. So that Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land. So the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither a tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. We'll come back to that piece. These locusts come, and they're meant to devour the whole land. What was left from the hail is now going to be consumed by the locusts. This swarm becomes unlike anything they'd ever experienced. It would have spiraled them into famine, right? So that would have been a byproduct of this plague. He's going to take their food sources. He's not going to give it back to them. He's not going to provide it. So he took the Nile River for a few days, but then gave it back, right? 
Um, he doesn't give it back to them here. He doesn't, he doesn't relinquish what they've lost. And so they would have probably spiraled into famine, which is, which is ironic because remember, much of their success over the years could be attributed to the financial gain they experienced during the last famine, right? The one that Joseph saved them from, right? In preparation for that famine, God tells Joseph, who's in captivity down there, he becomes a great leader in Egypt. He, he kind of works the system in such a way where Pharaoh and the Egyptians benefit greatly from everybody else's needs. So all these other people are coming to Egypt for food because there is none, and Egypt is gaining financially like crazy. They've abused that, right? They took the, the source of provision, the God of, of Joseph, and they've persecuted him. And now God's going to take all that wealth away, and he's going to put them in famine that they aren't prepared for. And they're going to be devastated by it. And the servants are crying out to Pharaoh and saying, how long until you humble yourself? We are devastated. Our country is devastated by this. In the midst of this plague, there is that call to action that says that God's stories are meant to be told as a way of equipping the next generation for what's next. God's stories are meant to be told as a way of equipping the next generation for what's next. What's God's idea here? He says, I want you to take the things that I'm doing. I want you to share them passionately with the coming generations so they know me. God's like, I'm not going to keep doing plagues over and over and over again for every generation to know me this way. Like, this is kind of a one-time thing for the Egyptians, but you're going to take it and it's going to be known for a long time. I mean, you can talk to people who aren't believers today and they know this story, right? Like God was successful in getting this story packaged in such a way where it was memorable. The plagues bring judgment on Egypt, but they also provide stories for Israel to share with the coming generations. Stories are a tool that we use to captivate an audience. I had the, the privilege of being at Disney this whole week with our eighth graders, and that's one of the things that you pick up on real quickly being at Disney World, that it's not just a place for rides, it's a place for storytelling. I remember that uh, before I had gone the last few years with our eighth graders, I would tell people, I'm like, I don't really see the difference between this and Six Flags. Like, why are we going all the way down to, to Orlando when we can ride roller coasters and rides like less than an hour away here in Atlanta? Like, we can just go to Six Flags, same thing. It's not really the same thing because... Six Flags, I don't think, embraces the storytelling aspect. Six Flags actually has more rides, I think, than Disney World does. I mean, you look at the map and you're like, I mean, there's like five rides here that I'm going to ride total. Like, why are we here? It's the storytelling piece. And we had a chance to go behind the scenes and do a class with uh, one of their um, employees. And he was talking about the intentionality that Disney has with their storytelling. Like, every, every ride, every part of their park is designed intentionally to tell stories. They want to captivate the audience. They want to capture the hearts of the people that come through there. They want to make it memorable. God's the, the superior storyteller, right? As good as Disney is, God far exceeds the ability to tell stories, and he's done it in such a way where we're supposed to tell these stories over and over and over again. We tell them to our children. We tell them to our grandchildren so that they'll know him as this all-supreme God. Each new generation needs to learn the faithful acts of God in the past to help them endure the new struggles they will face today. Let me say that again. Each new generation needs to learn the faithful acts of God in the past to help them endure the new struggles they will face today. Moses was faithful to pass on stories, and he did it to his father-in-law Jethro as soon as they get out of Egypt. Look what it says in Exodus chapter 18, verse 9. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Right? Jethro's heart is turned to Yahweh in a deeper, meaningful way because of the stories being told to him by Moses. Here's what God has done. And as parents, we should see the responsibility that we have to pass these stories on to our kids. 
because they're not always going to be under our shelter. There's coming a day where they're going to be out from underneath our shelter, and they're going to need to know where to go for shelter. And it's not running back to you. Right? It's finding security in him. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, again, as the children of Israel are learning to become a nation and learning uh, best practices for how they're going to they're gonna follow God, God anticipates the question coming of, why should we follow God from the, from the, from the kids? And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? All right, so when your kid comes to you and says, why do we have to do this? Why does God make us do this? Why will God not let us do this? Why does God require us to do this? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it'll be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commanded before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. What's he saying there? He's saying, when your kids come and say, why should we do this? You tell them, because our God saved us from Egypt. We were slaves to the Egyptians, and he rescued us. And he called us out of that. And he gave us a great land to live in. And the things that he's called us to, they are for our good. And it's righteousness for us to follow him and all the things that he's commanded. I was thinking about, well, well, how does that apply to the New Testament? Well, I think we have an even greater story to tell in the New Testament, right? Like the New Testament version of Deuteronomy 6 would be, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves, we were dead in our sins, and the Lord brought us to life through the work of his son. The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, by disarming the rulers and authorities at the cross. He saved us that he might join us together as the church with a new home that is coming at his return. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive for all eternity as we are this day. And that's the story that we get to tell. It's even greater than the story that we find in Exodus, that we have been saved not from slavery to humans, but slavery to our own selves and our sin. We've been rescued from that, and Jesus disarmed Satan and all the rulers and authorities that held sway over our souls. He created division between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, rescued us from darkness into light. That's why we follow him. That's why we do what he commanded us to do. Not so that he'll love us. He already does. We follow him. We obey him because he saved us, because he loves us. We tell stories of Yahweh to the next generation to captivate them with the storytelling so they persevere to the end. And then lastly, number three, we turn our hearts to Yahweh. Turn your heart to Yahweh. The last plague that we look at today is the plague of darkness. Three days worth of darkness comes. He sends a state of darkness to attack their God of the sun who was ultimately the king of all their gods. He kicks off the plagues by attacking their great source of provision, the Nile River. He caps off this series of nine plagues by going after their, their major god, their king of all the gods, right? Ra, the sun god, the one who was the most consistent thing in life, right? If there's anything that's consistent, it's that the sun comes up every, every, uh, every day, right? It sets and it comes back up again. It's one of the arguments given in Second uh, Peter for um, doubting the, the return of Jesus and the, the coming judgment and the end of the earth because every day things just happen as they always have from creation. Sun comes up, sun comes down. Sun comes up, sun comes down. I mean, if you're looking for something to worship outside of God, because we talk a lot about why, why do we worship Yahweh? He's stable. He's consistent. He always does what he says he's going to do. He's reliable, Right? 
Maybe the next best thing in the creative world is the sun, right? I mean, it's consistent. It's stable. It does what you think it's going to do every day. Comes up and comes down. They worshipped it. And for three days, it doesn't show up. It's, it's not there. I mean, I mean, think about the implications of that. The most consistent thing in life ceases to be consistent for them. They get full confirmation that their God isn't with them. I don't know what that would look like for us, but I can tell you how devastating it would be if there was some way to confirm that for three days, God was not with us. Like, whatever happens in those three days, he's not responsible for and he's not overseeing. Like, can you imagine, like, if we had confirmation that for three days, God was unavailable? I mean, that's what they dealt with because when the sun didn't come up and they were in pitch black darkness, and this isn't like the sun only shone a little bit. Like, when you go up north and they get into certain times of the year and, like, darkness and night kind of extends throughout, there's still light right? They still know the sun's coming up and coming down. It's just not shining in the normal ways for their, their part of the land. This says it was a darkness that was felt. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. The darkness was meant to immobilize the Egyptians. They would be forced to sit and think for three straight days. It was a darkness that was felt. I think the closest thing we can get to this is to uh, dive deep into a, a, a cave in the earth and cut the flashlight off. Like I, I've done this before. I've taken groups caving before over the years. We go deep into a cave and then we, we tell the kids to like cut their flashlights off. And it is dark. I mean, there is no light breaking through that darkness. You can't see your, you can't see your, your hand in front of your face. And it's almost like you can feel the darkness because immediately panic sets in. I mean, most kids won't keep their flashlight off for very long. I mean, you, you tell them to, hey, we're going to sit here for a minute. And you start seeing people like wanting to click that thing on. It's scary to be in that type of setting where you can literally see nothing. And for three days, we're told that was their environment couldn't see a thing. I mean, it's a picture of how dark they were in their sin and in their rebellion and their rejection of God and his people. For three days, they're immobilized in this. And the call to action is that true confession leads to complete obedience moving forward. I want us to backtrack now and see in all three of these plagues, confession um, on the surface of what Pharaoh gives in response to what's happening and the failure of that confession. It says in verse 27, back in chapter 9, then Pharaoh, in response to the hail, sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. I mean, that starts off so good. That's I mean, exactly what you want to hear in a response to the gospel. The Lord's right, I'm wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Moses is like, you're not fooling me again. Like, like I know you're not for real. I know you're not going to let us go. Verse 31 is kind of weird because it's just kind of thrown in here. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Then verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Isn't that a weird thing to kind of throw in there about the barley and stuff? It's like, we're just kind of humming along. We got Pharaoh and his response, and he's pleading. Sounds like he's going to repent. The Lord's right. I'm not right. Moses is like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't believe you. And then like, and by the way, like some of the stuff had already died, and some of it hadn't died yet because it hadn't come up yet. And then we just kind of roll right into uh, Moses ending the plague. 
I think the significance of that is, is that the reason he hardens his heart is because he realizes in the midst of the devastation that things are going to start to grow again, right? That we haven't been totally devastated, right? Because that, that, we don't know exactly how quick the plagues are happening one after another, right? Some of them I think are pretty quick, but, but maybe there's some time extended between some of them. I think this is put here because it helps us to see that he reverts back to what he was trusting in as soon as he starts to see the crops coming up in a different manner. Hey, we didn't lose everything. I don't have to really turn to this God of, of, of the Hebrews because I can keep going back to my source of security. <clears throat> we fast forward into that locust plague. Pharaoh seems content to let the locust come, but in verse 7 it says, The Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Right? So he was willing to just, hey, you guys go and uh, bring the locusts, whatever. The, the servants were like, please don't. See if you can strike a bargain with him. Right? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh wants to strike a bargain. He says, you can take the men. You can't take the women and children. You can't take your flocks and herds. But you, the men, can go. We'll come back to the significance of that here in just a minute. Um, chapter uh, 10, verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then in verse 24, Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. These confessions start off with great hope, right? He says, I'm in the wrong, the Lord's in the right, but then things go wrong. Where's his confession off? I want to give you a couple points here as we close. His acknowledgement of sin has a minimized feel to it, right? He talks about this time I've sinned. Forgive me only this time. He's, he's singling out his sin or his rebellion. He's not encompassing the fact that I've killed Hebrew boys. I've kept them in, in undue slavery for years, right? His rebellion and his sin is so much bigger than he's realizing at this point. His acknowledgement of sin is not sincere. He's remorseful, but he's not repentant. He's upset about the punishment, but he's not upset about his action that led to the punishment. He just wants relief from it. Notice how his acknowledgement is made to Moses, but not to Yahweh, right? He's confessing to human beings about his sin because why? He wants relief, but not relationship. He wants to be spared from the punishment. He doesn't want to follow Yahweh. He doesn't want relationship with the God of the Hebrews. He just wants relief from the situation. His acknowledgement is to obey, but only half-heartedly. He's only willing to sacrifice what won't really cost him. He's like, hey, you guys can go worship, but you leave your women and children behind. You leave your livestock behind. He wants to hold on to the women and children because it would force the men to come back. I love how Moses emphasizes, we ain't leaving without our women and children. They're too important not to have at the worship time, right? But we got to have them there. We can't just have the men worshiping. It's for the men and the women and the children. We're bringing everybody to worship Yahweh. One commentator said, God doesn't bargain with sinners. In the gospel, he offers sinners a bargain. Let me say that again. God doesn't bargain with sinners. In the gospel, he offers sinners a bargain. This is what we're called to. This is what it looks like to turn your heart to Yahweh. 
It's not what Pharaoh does. Young people, listen to me. This is not what obedience to Jesus looks like. We don't obey Jesus half-heartedly. We don't obey Jesus uh, when it only costs us a little bit. To come to Christ is to declare that there is no command we will not keep, no sin we will not forsake, no duty we will not perform, no talent we will not employ in our ambition to give all the glory to God. To come to Christ is to declare that there is no command we will not keep, no sin we will not forsake, no duty we will not perform, and no talent we will not employ in our ambition to give all the glory to God. How do you know that you've taken shelter with Jesus? You give him everything. You commit yourself fully to him. And that ought to be evident to the people around us. Pharaoh says, the Lord would have to be with you for me to let all of you go. It's ironic because that's exactly what happens. He lets them all go because the Lord is with his people. Our application, do I take regular shelter in Jesus by turning my heart to him in faithful obedience in all known ways while letting the stories of his faithfulness in times past keep me persevering in moments when I'm prone to question or doubt his actions? Do I take regular shelter in Jesus by turning my heart to him in faithful obedience in all the known ways while letting the stories of his faithfulness in times past keep me persevering in moments when I'm prone to question or doubt his actions. Remember, one of the reasons that we're studying Exodus is because as we were studying Psalms, the psalmist kept coming back to God's faithfulness in the Exodus. It was this paramount story that persevered them through challenging times today. It should still be doing that for us today. For all of us, adult and kids alike, whatever we face this week, we persevere through it because we know Yahweh is still with his people. And he's the shelter that we run to. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you. That you are the one true God. And while we have sinned against you because we have exalted ourselves against you, you have made a way of escape where we can find shelter with you. We thank you for bargaining with us. We thank you for giving us a way to escape. Lord, help us to realize we don't get to bargain with you. We don't get to decide how obedient we'll be to you in response to all you've done for us. Lord, help us to see the stories of your salvations in the past. Lord, help it to captivate us. Help the storytelling of Scripture to captivate our hearts to where we are driven to be obedient to you. And when we're prone to question, why should we do this? Why should we not do this? Lord, remind us of what you purchased for us at the cross. You've given us eternal life with you. How could we not follow you in all that you've called us to? Lord, I pray that our, our men, our women, our children, worshiping here together today, would hear that message. We'd turn our hearts to you. We'd find shelter in you. And when we question you, Lord, help us to remember these great stories and to persevere. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.